You are listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans as they examine America's most infamous true crime cases as they were established in our courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts, not the court of public opinion. Here's Lisa and Kyle. Welcome to season two of Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Lisa O'Brien, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kyle Evans. In episode six, Update, Texas versus Rodney Reed, we'll talk about Reed's state court litigation and agreed DNA testing outside Chapter 64, his challenge to the state court DNA procedures, including the opinion issued by the U.S. Supreme Court that returned Rodney Reed's federal challenge to Texas to Texas DNA statute to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and what that really means for Reed. With any luck, we'll have a decision by the uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on Reed's 10th and 11th state writ soon. Because we have a lot of information about Reed's DNA testing efforts and test results, we are going to postpone our discussion of the Richard Glossop case to later this month. So good evening, Kyle. Good evening, Lisa. How are you? Very well. Very well. I, I excellent. I took a deep dive into the DNA test and and for the first time I really reviewed all of the DNA reports and learned some very interesting facts that um the media and Reed's advocates seem to um be totally unaware of or at least ignoring. Yeah, definitely. Probably both in a lot of these cases, both willful willful ignorance or if they do know, just simply don't report on the full story. Right, right. So let's get started. Uh, First of all, the victim in this case is Stacy Lee Stite. She was 19 years old. Uh, She was murdered, raped and murdered by Rodney Reed on April 23rd, 1996. Uh, The location of the crime is unknown. Uh, but it occurred in Bastrop County, and Stacy's body was found in Bastrop County. Stacy left her apartment in Giddings, Texas at around 3 o'clock in the morning to travel to her Bastrop, Texas job at HEB. She had an early morning shift in the produce department. At some time during her drive, she encountered Reed, who abducted her, then raped and murdered her. Based on a statement from a newspaper delivery person, Stacy's body was placed off the side of a road in rural Bastrop County at some time after 4 o'clock a.m. The red pickup Stacy was driving was left in a parking lot behind Bastrop High School and was noted to be there by a police officer at around 5.23 a.m. Stacy's body was found at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Reed was not immediately looked at as a suspect in spite of his history of domestic violence and prior rape allegations, including a 1995 rape on the railroad tracks near the high school parking lot. It wasn't until he attempted to abduct another 19-year-old woman in the same area that led police to compare Rodney Reed's DNA to the DNA from Stacy's murder. In an interview on April 4, 1997, Reed denied knowing Stacy. At his trial, he claimed a secret relationship with her, but presented two witnesses 
who were not found to be credible by their by his jury. He was convicted and sentenced to death. Yeah, and Lisa, I think it's important, you know, you're talking about things that the media just ignores. You know, this this tragedy, you know, Stacy's death, Reed's career of mayhem was really bookended by two very similar cases. Previously in Wichita Falls, he was accused of rape and he ran this exact same play. We were secretly dating. We had a relationship and guess what? It worked. He got acquitted in that case. And then, as you just mentioned, he was only really, he only became a suspect after he literally committed the exact same crime, but the girl was fortunately able to get away. So a lot of times people forget that, you know, this was not Reed's first time to commit this crime. Correct. Absolutely. Spot on. And uh, another thing that I want to make very clear and it's very important that that people seem to forget and reads advocates again are willfully ignorant and i think the press is willfully ignorant to a degree as well rodney reed's conviction is not based on circumstantial evidence it's not based on inconclusive dna evidence in 1998 they were able to get conclusive dna results from the evidence collected as a result of Stacy's murder. And those results linked Reed to the DNA by like one in five billion. So more than the world's population at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And and not to derail us because I will uh I was listening to another podcast you hosted and I thought you guys made a great point where, you know, there is this recent made up theory that there was an alternative suspect who killed her and drowned her. And I thought you guys made the fantastic point. And I, I just, I want to bring it up early for people that are new that still have this bias that, you know, he's innocent. If Stacy was drowned in a bathtub, there would not be any of Rodney DNA's, Rodney Reed's DNA on her body. So the fact that that DNA was found basically disproves this alternative suspect theory which i'm just not going to dignify with the name because i get correct to a degree although uh, correct to a degree although the the odd lividity patterns have led to some interesting contortions for example uh kevin gannon i believe his theory is that she was held kneeling next to the tub with her head held in the tub Um, so that would not necessarily, but again, there's no reason for Roddy Reed's DNA to be there. Absolutely. You know, the secret relationship, there has never been a credible witness to testify to a secret relationship with Rodney Reed. And most importantly, in 1996, when Stacy was murdered, nobody said, Hey, look, I know she's engaged to this cop, but she's seeing a guy named Rodney Reed. You need to go talk to him. Yeah, And, and other I, I, guys that she was friends with, people gave their names and sent police their way. Right. And if I recall, there was a pretty hefty reward put on maybe by HEB for any information about her. And so, Correct. you know, Bastrop is not the Hamptons. 
1996, $50,000 would go a really, 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 really long way in Bastrop. And so mm -hmm. I am sure if anybody knew, hey, she's having an affair with this guy, the chance of 50 grand would be more than they could resist. Yeah, definitely. All right. So uh, I'm going to just kind of give you a little thumbnail of Reed's uh, due process so far. Uh, of course, he had his trial um, from April in April. Of, I mean, May of 1998. He was convicted of capital murder, two counts on April 18th, 1998. He was sentenced to death on April. I mean, on May. I'm sorry, May 5th, May 18th, May 28th, 1998. He was sentenced to death. His appeal, his direct appeal was decided on December 6th, 2000. And there's a quote from that direct appeal that I want to read. Given the strength of the DNA evidence connecting Reed to the sexual assault on Stacy and the forensic evidence indicating that the person who sexually assaulted Stacy was the person who killed her, a reasonable jury could find that Reed is guilty of the offense of capital murder. And concluding that Reed's other claims are without merit, we affirm Reed's conviction and sentence. So that is his direct appeal. Uh, he did petition the U.S. Supreme Court for review, and that was denied on October 9th, 2001, making his conviction and sentence final. Reed has had, has filed 10, well, 11 state post-conviction writs, alleging various claims which have been we've talked about in other episodes and maybe we'll talk about them again at another time but um, his first and second writs were denied in 2002 he had a writ denied in 2008 that was his third state post-conviction writ and the court of criminal appeals actually issued a pretty comprehensive opinion denying that writ then he had uh, his fourth and fifth writs were dismissed in 2009. His sixth writ was also dismissed in 2009. And I believe there was also a, re a relatively comprehensive opinion related to that. Uh, also in connection with his first, second, and I believe third post-conviction writs, he actually got hearings before the, the, the trial court. Um, one of those may have been in connection with a federal writ, but he's had he had two hearings during that process. Um, and then his seventh writ, which was filed on the eve of his 2015 execution date, was dismissed in 2017. Uh, his eighth and ninth writs relief was denied on claims that had been remanded. So he, he had a third hearing and then the remaining claims in those writs were dismissed as abuse of the writ meaning they could have been raised before and weren't and then um his 20 uh his 10th writ was remanded so he's had a fourth hearing the trial court issued its findings of fact and conclusions of law in november of 2021 that is still under review at the at the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. 
He filed an 11th writ in December of 2021, and that is also pending at this time at the Court of Criminal Appeals. Reed has also had a full complement of federal post-conviction writ of habeas corpus litigation. He had his petition for writ of habeas corpus, which was actually filed around 2001, was finally dismissed on summary judgment in 2012. And that was, you know, at least one hearing remanded back from one hearing with the state court to develop factual basis for claims. Um, Then the judge in the federal case issued his judgment in September 26, 2012. That was finally dismissing all of Reed's district court claims. He appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which denied or rather affirmed the district court on January 10th, 2014. And he filed a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was denied on November 3rd, 2014. So for anybody to argue that Rodney Reed has not had a fair shake in post-conviction, they obviously have not looked at the record or read any of the opinions or anything where he did get the benefit of the doubt and he did get opportunities to develop evidence that he just didn't, he didn't succeed. And something I'm noticing is a lot of times for these, and especially anti-death penalty, they believe due process means you win. Yeah, You get what you're yeah, asking very, for. Yeah, that's a really good point. And if you don't get what you're asking for, then you were denied due process. Right. And that simply it's, is not how it works. It's like I always joke with you. Every uh, every convicted person automatically has ineffectual counsel. Correct. Correct. So uh, this is where the DNA and the DNA saga, we're, we're at the DNA saga, the very beginning, the first thing. Now, remember, he's been challenging his conviction and sentence since 2001, or really since 1998, the day he was convicted because he began with his direct appeal. But now, on January 13, 2014, his attorney, Bryce Benjay, who had been representing him since probably around 2008, um he finally writes to the DA for Bastrop County and he wants to do DNA testing as though there's no DNA evidence in this case to prove Reed's innocence. And the items he tells uh, DA Gertz he wants to test are Stacy's belt, biological samples from Stacy's body, Stacy's clothing, hairs found on her body and clothing, her name tag, Items from the ground near the truck in the high school parking lot, condoms found near Stacy's body, fingerprints found on the truck and other items, and a white t-shirt found near Stacy's body. And there was a detailed list attached, uh, which is in the in the uh, in an appeal record, and I just kind of summarized it because this is just the beginning. There there will be more detail later. Um then in the meantime, they've also sought recusal of Judge Reva Towsley Corbett, who was the daughter of 
uh, Harold Towsley, who was the original trial judge. Um, so on May 23rd, 2014, Judge Corbett voluntarily, voluntarily recused herself. That led to the um, administrative district judge appointing a judge to handle the case. And that judge was the Honorable Judge Shaver. He was a senior judge with the 262nd Judicial District Court. Uh, and I believe that's in Harris County. And he was appointed to the 21st Judicial District Court in Bastrop County beginning on May 28, 2014. Um, so there were official notices and letters regarding his appointment that were generated and sent out. Um, and Rodney Reed's, Rodney Reed's attorneys got notice of that. But did they challenge it at that time? No, they did not. We'll talk about that a little later. Um, then on July 14, 2014, the same day that they had a hearing scheduled in uh, the states uh, to hear the motion to set execution date filed by the state, Rodney Reed filed a Chapter 64 motion for DNA testing. At the hearing, he basically argued that we want this DNA testing, so it's too soon to set an execution date, and it's not fair, and, you know, we want this testing, and... Um, and I could understand if there were inconclusive DNA results, for example, if, if Rodney Reed's DNA, if Rodney Reed's conviction was based on HLA DQ alpha, which just didn't exclude him or on, right. um, or on a, a partial profile that didn't exclude him, but that's not the basis for Rodney Reed's conviction. The DNA in Rodney Reed's case was absolutely conclusive and unrefuted by Rodney Reed at any time during these 14 years or 16 years post-conviction. Right. Um, so during the, um, at some point on that same date, perhaps, you know, Brian Gertz had agreed he agreed to do limited testing of evidence in the custody of the Texas Department of Public Safety, which meant all the swabs, all the extracts, all the slides that had been prepared and generated and utilized during the original testing. He agreed to retesting with 2014 DNA testing methods. Um, and so they, they entered an order and basically what they were, what they agreed to test were the swabs from Stacy's body, specifically the vaginal, anal, rectal, and breast swabs, cuttings from her panties, four strands of hair recovering from her body or clothing. There was apparently a hair on her left sock, a hair on her uh, back of her left leg, a hair on her back, and a hair on her pubic area. They also uh, set out parameters for the testing, which I'm not going to detail, uh, but basically DPS, it was going to be done at the Garland DPS lab, which is not the same because the Austin DPS lab did the original testing, and they were going to communicate with the attorneys and let them know if something's going to be consumed 
um, let them know beforehand that that's going to be consumed and let them say whether to go ahead, go forward with testing of that item or not. Um, and so, and as you see on my, on my, my notes, I mean, it's, it's a page, like a page and a half, I think of, of parameters mm -hmm. for the testing. Absolutely. Um, and so then there was, uh, judge Shaver's authorization in his, for his appointment was extended um, by the administrative, the head of the administrative district, I guess. Um, then the state filed a response to Rodney Reed's DNA motion. And they basically argued that the DNA motion was in, was deficient in its specificity and lacked an affidavit from Reed, which is required by the statute that the last minute request was dilatory for the purposes of unreasonable delay. And, and I think that's a fair um, a fair opinion based on the fact that it was filed on the day of a hearing on a motion to set an execution date. And at that hearing, they argued that because they wanted to litigate this DNA testing, that they couldn't, that the judge shouldn't set an execution date. Um, they also pointed out that the informal request for testing was not made until three days after the Fifth Circuit denied uh, a firm denial of federal habeas relief that uh, Reed had filed a motion to recuse and an attorney scheduling conflicts delayed the hearing on the motion for to set execution date that they, he filed the formal motion on the day of that hearing. Um, also, they argued that he could have filed the state DNA motion while he was still engaged in federal court because the two forum rule doesn't apply. Because federal court has no jurisdiction over state DNA statute and litigation of, of requests based on that statute. Um, and I, I totally agree. He could have filed a DNA testing anytime between 2011 and 2014 while he was still litigating his federal. And he certainly could have filed it in 2012 after his federal habeas relief was denied. Right. Because all the f the Fifth Circuit's going to do is look at the record of that litigation and decide whether or not the district judge was right or wrong in dismissing Reed's claims, which have nothing to do with DNA testing. Um, he also had federal proceedings were stayed for five years to, for Reed to return to state court. That was probably at least three state court writs. Uh, Reed's counsel knew 2011 amendments to chapter 64 did not change Reed's burden of proof regarding the presence of biological material. Um, so there are, there are a bunch of things. Um, uh, they also argued, and I want to, I want to point this out. They argued in their opposition that the chain of custody requirement for items presently possessed by the district court was insufficient. And that's because the district court clerk in 1998 did not separately package the evidence. Um, and there was no anticipation that a method of DNA testing to recover epithelial cells rather than using biological materials such as saliva, blood, semen, 
would be um would become available right and so it's not like they're making this up as they go along they've all along said the district court evidence was commingled it was contaminated and so we can't rely on the results and one of the reasons they can't rely on the results is they a do not know every person who handled or touched the evidence Right. And B, they cannot get reference samples from everyone who handled or touched the evidence. Exactly. Leading to the very real possibility that they will have unknown male DNA profiles ac across multiple pieces of evidence that are not related to the crime. That arise because a juror or a clerk or an attorney or a witness handled the evidence or handled multiple pieces of evidence. Right. Exactly. So, um, and then finally, one of the biggest arguments, and I think this is the, this is the primary reason that Reed's request for DNA testing fails. Uh, aside from the timing that was litigated and, and the, um, the chain of custody and contamination claims but Reed has not proven by a preponderance of the evidence that he would not have been convicted, but for exculpatory results from DNA testing. As to extraneous offense evidence, Chapter 64 does not authorize testing when exculpatory results might only affect punishments or sentence. Because he wanted to test the, the evidence related to Vivian and, and Angela to try and say, see, I didn't do it. Uh, alternatively, the request should be forfeited as inadequately brief because the evidence from the extraneous offenses is not listed in Reed's specific testing requests. The court does not author does not have authorization to entertain a sixth subsequent habeas application, and pre-application DNA testing is not authorized. The court cannot consider post-trial evidence when deciding whether or not Reed has carried his burden to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that he would not have been convicted had exculpatory results been obtained through DNA testing. And that's a very important factor because in reality, finding no DNA on the belt or other evidence, finding no DNA or, or not finding Reed's DNA, finding unknown DNA on the belt or other evidence, or even finding Jimmy Finnell's DNA on the belt or other evidence is not going to exonerate Rodney Reed. No, exactly. And none of that would be surprising. Like yeah. finding Finnell's DNA everywhere would not be surprising. Yeah. Because it, a lot of the things Reed wants to test are things that came from Finnell's truck. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's a real Stacey. specious argument. You know, so. Yeah, of um, course. The uh, and and the, the post-trial evidence that they're talking about is these other experts who say Stacy died hours earlier than the estimate given at trial um, from Dr. Bayardo, who by the time he was interviewed by the defense, I believe was in the early stages of dementia um, where he was having probably having issues, cognitive deficits, um, so he said what they wanted to hear. Right. 
Um, but you know, they even waited, they didn't go to him in 1998 or 1999. They claimed they needed this other evidence about Fennell to go to him, but you know, really his testimony has nothing to do with Fennell. Why does he need to hear that exactly. you've got witnesses who say Fennell was abusive? Yeah, exactly. It has it, yeah, exactly right. If 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 there was a reasonable question to the autopsy that is completely independent from an alternative suspect mm -hmm. and should have been raised at trial. And mm -hmm. you see that a lot in these kind of innocent fraud cases is where some magical mystery alternative suspect will emerge yeah. and then they basically go rewrite the history to fit that narrative. Correct. Correct. Um, and then they also argued that Reed has failed repeatedly failed to prove his innocence or allegations of prosecutorial misconduct using evidence he presently cites. Um, he asked the court to use an exculpatory result presu presumption that there would be a match to a known offender in CODIS to meet his burden of proving that he would not have been convicted but for DNA testing, even though the CCA has explicitly rejected Reed's definition of exculpatory results. And then they go on to cite the, the accepted definition of exculpatory result presumption by the CCA, which is results excluding the convicted person as a donor of the material, period. Exactly. Uh, and I, this will be, uh, I will continue to um, preach on the same topic. This was not like he was an innocent man who was minding his own business and got entrapped in this through this evidence he he was previously multiple times accused of doing this exact same thing and was only found by abducting and attempting to rape and kill yet another woman so yeah. it is hardly like he was just an innocent man minding his own business who got unfairly convicted i don't feel like i can say that enough yeah so um i'm gonna go through kind of sketch um, they address the different evidence Reed wants to test, the evidence found in the truck. Not finding Reed's DNA on that is not going to be particularly surprising. Finding DNL's, D, uh, Fennell's DNA would not be surprising. It was his truck. Um, evidence found inside his truck, again, same re rationale. Um, evidence found near Stacy's body. Also, she was driving the truck. She borrowed his T-shirt. And jurors heard that Reed's fingerprints were not on Stacy's clothing or items found near her body. Therefore, they've never been told that any of the evidence linked Roddy Reed. So testing it would be, you know, there's no need. Now they went, um, they went into the evidence found on or in Stacy's body, and I want to kind of detail it because it. It gives us a look at the trial DNA evidence. Um, they also they point out they have agreed to test the four hairs to try and recover DNA if they can identify who those hairs belong to, even though the jury was not told those hairs belong to Rodney Reed. Um, they also uh, pointed out that Stacy's body, body was found on a rural road where she could have picked up hair. A blanket was placed on her body to shield it from a newspaper, a news helicopter. Uh, the jury was told it's not uncommon to find random hairs on from other people. Jurors knew that all the hairs were dissimilar to Reed, yet they convicted him. 
The jury heard that there were two saliva stains on the pants that had DQA alpha alleles 1.2 and 4, which did not exclude Stacy. The jury also knew that Reed's DQ alpha alleles are 1.2 and 3. So technically, Reed wasn't actually excluded from those samples. Because the 1.2 could be Stacy or it could be Reed. But again, they weren't told that the DNA belonged to Reed. They were told it, it didn't exclude Stacy. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's, yeah, just, I mean, the stuff in the truck too, I think it's an important reminder, you know, her fiance, the owner of the truck was in law enforcement. She works at a grocery store, both very public, high contact, mm -hmm. you know, occupation. So again, finding other DNA in the truck wouldn't be earth shattering. Yeah. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. <laughs> so they pointed out that the case against Reed remained strong. His intact sperm was found inside Stacy's body. Her She had been recently abducted and raped. She was obviously on her way to work based on the way she was dressed, wearing her work uniform. Her body bore injuries indicating abduction, including bruises consistent with being held down and removed by force by while wearing her seatbelt. She was partially disrobed with her pants zipper broken and her panties bunched at the hip. Reed's sperm was intact, indicating recent deposit. Reed's semen was leaking from Stacy's vaginal cavity, indicating that she hadn't been vertical after Reed deposited semen inside her. Uh, and that is an important part um, that I didn't really, that's never really clicked with me. But she didn't, she hardly moved after he uh, right. deposited sperm. No, yeah, um, exactly. Uh, the truck was found near Reed's home. Reed was the same height as the person who tilted the truck seat back. He was frequently seen in the area of Stacy's route to work at the time of the morning she would have been passing through. Because if phase. I recall, right, doesn't, wasn't there, wasn't that, doesn't the road where she was driving, I think if I recall, run parallel to some railroad tracks, like, you know, reasonably close. And I think, didn't he have a habit of, yeah, you know, traversing walking along the track, on the yeah. railroad track. So it would, it would make total sense that he is walking at night, crosses the street to go home and just happens upon her. It mm -hmm. is very reasonable. Yeah. And it also crossed tracks where the trains came through at that time of the morning. Um, according to Tim Sparkman. So uh, I know other people have said that's not true, but um, when I lived in Arkansas, that was really when the most traffic came through for train traffic was between midnight and Oh Five yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I don't even think that's controversial. Yeah, of course. That's yeah. there's a lot of traffic overnight. Um, and then the punishment phase evidence demonstrated that Reed was a serial rapist and had raped or attempted to rape women in the vicinity and time where and when Stacy disappeared. It also showed, as you pointed out, that Reed committed a rape in Wichita Falls in 1987, I believe, 
He denied knowing the woman until they sought biological samples from him. Then he said, okay, you know, we had sex. She wanted it. And then when he went to trial, he said, oh, we had a secret relationship. And I beat the shit out of her because she called me the N-word. And his jury bought that. You know, and I, and I think there's, I think there is a couple of points worth noting here. You know, I think one, the innocence fraud folks and sort of the media narrative love to play up the, the racism angle that, oh, it had to be secret because you know, interracial dating would have had him murdered, which the fact that he was previously ran this play proves that even before this, he was in an Mm -hmm. interracial relationship and there was no issue. He was actually, he was actually, you know, acquitted, you know, years earlier um, for the crime that he claimed was so frightening would have him murdered for dating Mm -hmm. a white girl. Yeah. And And well, I mean, it, it goes a step further depending upon the circumstances his mother has said he always dated white girls yeah absolutely um the mother of his two of his children is a white girl exactly and, and i would and i would say too well i absolutely admit there are unintelligent unsophisticated people that don't understand the complexities of the legal system and can find themselves in trouble by being unsophisticated. Mm-hmm. Reed has been tried and acquitted for rape and assault. He is sophisticated. He knows how the system works. He No cop is going to pull a fast one on him. He's lived through it and he won the first time. Mm-hmm. So this idea that he's just some poor, unsophisticated guy that doesn't understand anything about the legal system and that's why he got convicted is just a complete... Correct. It's it's all it's all uh it's smoke and mirrors. Are you still there? Is my is my connection going down? I think I accidentally oh. muted myself. Oh, you no, did. You I did apologize. Accidentally. But no, I, I don't know where I left off. But yeah, I mean the down arrow is he is a sophisticated when it comes to the Texas legal system. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that anybody, whether a cop or anybody else is going to pull a fast one on him is silly because if anything, he's already pulled a fast one on the jury system and the legal system in Texas. Yeah. All right. So there's some letter wrangling over whether or not a hearing is going to be held on read CNA motion. Um, And then uh, they actually, submitted some evidence for a supplemental trace analysis. Um, they, uh, this was a vaginal swab collected from the victim during autopsy, which was forwarded to the garden Garland DPS laboratory An animal hair fragment was recovered from the swab, uh, but it was unsuitable for comparison and no other hairs were recovered. So they're beginning to implement this agreed testing order. Now, they also, uh, Bryce Benjet supplemented Reed's DNA testing motion with an affidavit from Rodney Reed. 
And I want to read you the claims in Rodney Reed's affidavit because a very, a big thing for me is that his mother has never testified. His brother Roderick has never testified. And he has never testified under oath regarding this alleged relationship. So his story on November 21st, 2014 is that the, his lawyers have provided the courts with evidence of his innocence. He believes that DNA testing requested in his motion will prove his innocence and identify Stacy's actual killer. He says he met Stacy in October or November of 1995 in the game room in back of the Diamond Shamrock and Bastrop. They started talking and played some pool. Uh, they then left and went to the boat dock to talk some more. Stacy dropped him off at his house. He may have given her the phone number for the payphone at Long's Market because they didn't have a phone in the house. Stacy would occasionally stop by his house or the community center next door to see him, or she would call the payphone at Long's. Uh, she, they would see each other twice a week, but might go a couple weeks without seeing each other. His mother would see Stacy when she came by the house looking for him. They went to the gazebo in Bastrop State Park or another spot near a pond in the park. And personally, I believe this is where the rape occurred. But unfortunately, nobody, you know, realized that until it's too late. You think at the gazebo? At the gazebo or at, by the lake. Yeah. Uh, by the boat dock. Uh, they went to a bar called Ray's Place, Ray's Place that was down the street from his mom's house. They went to Linda Kay Westmoreland's house. Uh, she was already exposed as a big liar during Reed's, one of Reed's post-conviction claims. So that in 2014, he's citing her as a credible witness as laughable. Uh, they only had sex a handful of times at either the Bastrop State Park at his mother's house or Linda Kay Westmoreland's house. Stacy told him she was dating a police officer on the second or third time they went out. He doesn't remember when, but at some point he learned his name was Jimmy Finnell. Stacy told him that Jimmy wanted to marry her. That didn't bother Reed because he was also seeing other women. Neither of them thought their relationship was serious and they were both dating other people. He doesn't remember meeting any of Stacy's friends during the time he was seeing her, except James Robertson, another proven liar. He knew Robertson and would hang out with him at the community center near his mom's house. Uh, James Robertson said he went to school with Stacy in Bastrop. Stacy graduated from Smithville. So that's the kind <laughs> of liar that Fantastic. James Robertson is. Less than a month before Stacy was murdered, he was threatened by Jimmy Finnell. He claims he was walking at night on the north end of Bastrop with his cousin Chris Aldridge. A Bastrop sheriff's deputy's car pulled up to them with two white men in the car. The man in the passenger seat came out and he recognized him as Jimmy Finnell, even though he doesn't say when he saw Jimmy Finnell for the first time to know he was Jimmy Finnell. He does not know who the man driving the car was, but he was larger than Jimmy, was wearing a uniform and could have been Curtis Davis. Jimmy said he knew Reed was messing with his girl and that he was going to pay. He does not know how Jimmy figured out Reed was seeing Stacy. The only connection is that Reed was dating Michelle Castillo and her brother Randy was in Jimmy's police academy class. He saw Stacy a week or so after Jimmy threatened him and told her about it. The last time he saw Stacy was either very late Sunday night, April 21st, or very early Monday morning on April 22nd. And just as an aside, I still do not believe that Stacy would leave the apartment with Jimmy. 
go pick Reed up, have sex, and then go to work, and then come home from work. I think if she was going to hook up with Reed, she would do it when she wasn't going to work, either yeah. by lying about working or, but that's not who Stacy was. No, well, that's, a, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point, Lisa. I mean, if you just think about it practically, I mean, I'm biased. I'm not a big morning person, but she's already up at two o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. for a long day of work. It just doesn't pass the smell test that mm -hmm. I'm going to get up at 2 a.m., drive 35 minutes in the dark, have a booty call, and then go to work. There's lots yeah. of other opportunities to have the booty call. Yeah. And Reed would have had to be very quick. Exactly. The time that St the time that Stacy left her apartment was just enough time to drive to Bastrop to get to work on time. Exactly. And they and her coworker said she was never late. Right. And that's well, why and I think this so concerned yep. on April twenty third. Well, and I think it just I think it continues to undermine his whole story because if he says, not only was I seeing her, it was so public that a bunch of people knew. Because we all went to this bar, even a policeman knew that I was having an affair with her, her fiance. You would think the first thing he would do when he found out she was murdered would be go to the police station and say, mm -hmm. hey, I just want to let you know I'm having an affair with this girl. So you may find something on me. And here's my alibi and how yeah. I did not kill her. And exactly. again, for those of you screaming to racism at the podcast, Rodney Reed is a sophisticated. He has done this before. He has been accused of raping a white woman and got off running this play. Mm -hmm. So he has succeeded in getting out of this so there's no to racism that's going to automatically convict him and he would have no rational fear that he would be automatically convicted because he's already won and beat the system with this crap correct okay now his story about the last time he saw stacy is that she came by the community center by his mom's house which i don't understand how i don't i don't i don't believe that a community center would be open at three o'clock in the morning um that she picked him up and they drove to the Bastrop State Park. They had sex in the park. Then Stacy dropped him off around three at the corner of Link Linden and Main Street before she went to work. He didn't hear that Stacy had been murdered until Thursday or Friday of that week. He was either at his mom's house or his cousin Shante Reed's house when someone told him about the murder. He didn't believe it until he saw it on the news. Immediately suspected Jimmy Finnell killed Stacy, but he did not go to the police about this. He knew Jimmy was a police officer with many friends in Bastrop. He did not want to get involved and was afraid he would become a suspect if he told police that they had been dating. Jimmy Fennell had threatened him, and if he came forward, he was concerned Jimmy Fennell would retaliate. And for the same reason, he denied knowing Stacy when he was arrested on drug charge in 1997. It's a question about Stacy's murder. Now, Chris Aldridge has already told this Bastrop sheriff Jimmy Fennell threatened Rodney Reed messing with his girl story and guess what the the courts found about chris aldridge liar 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 so again there were a lot of problems with that story um primarily that a bastard sheriff's deputy with jimmy finnell who is a gettings police officer just didn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense
Um, Rodney Reed's counsel also filed a reply to the state's response to their motion for DNA testing, which basically they just repeat their post-conviction evidence claims. I think believing that the more times they repeat it, the more chance it becomes true. Uh, and they disputed the state's pr procedural and evidentiary objection to Reed's request. Uh, again, they're treating it as though there is zero DNA evidence in this case. Right. That Reed's conviction is based on weak circumstantial evidence and that they've developed this vast body of, of exculpatory evidence and they need DNA testing to bolster that evidence. Well, reality is Reed's conviction is underpinned by semen DNA, saliva DNA that conclusively linked Reed to, to Stacy's murder. Um, there was a hearing on Reed's DNA motion on November 25th, 2014. Uh, the judge ruled from the bench. He denied the motion for DNA testing, but he did withdraw Reed's execution date and um, granted the state's motion to modify the execution date to May March 5th, 2015. And in these notes, I don't have a lot of the execution date stuff um, because it didn't happen. And then on December 12th, 2014, the judge issued his findings of fact and conclusions of law. And um, while I did take the time to kind of um, duplicate them, <laughs> I'm not going to go ahead. I'm not going to go through and um, and repeat them. Uh, basically, most of the reasons the state cited are the reasons that the motion was denied. I will, I do, however, have a website that has a lot of these trial documents and a lot of the findings of fact and conclusions of law and court opinions, as well as hearing transcripts. So I will post a link to those not only on the Facebook page, but on the YouTube video. So that people who want to look at the individual findings of fact and conclusions of law or the various court opinions uh, can do so at their leisure. On December 12th, 2014, also uh, the Benjet received a letter from Technical Associates, which was Reed's trial DNA expert, and they provided an inventory of evidence in possession of Technical Associates, including but not limited to swabs from beer cans recovered near Stacy's body, reference sample and swabs from Stacy's body clothing, including her panties, pants, and back brace, reference samples and evidence swabs from Angela H., reference sample and evidence swabs from from Vivian H. Uh, reference samples from Brian Haynes, Edward Salmella, Gre David Hall, Gregory Corner, William Barton, and Gerald Glenn Wright Jr. Reference sample from David Lawhon and a blue condom. And I believe they also had a reference sample from Rodney Reed, which isn't, isn't cited here. Um, but in connection with new DNA testing, uh, for at least for Reed, they would do a subpoena and get a fresh reference sample from him anyway. Um, excuse me. Then on the 15th, Reed's counsel filed a motion for an order transferring evidence to Selmark Forensics. Um, this was dealing with the evidence in possession of Technical Associates Incorporated. Uh, this would have been for testing outside of Chapter 64. Um, 
which is perfectly acceptable and could have been done again after 2011, before 2014. <laughs> um, there is an undated order in the file that was signed and entered by Judge Shaver, and that did order transferring hairs, um, DNA extracts, and reagent blanks for hairs number three and six to the Garland DPS crime lab from technical associates. Um, there's another order later transferring evidence from technical associates to Selmark. Now on December 16th, 2014, the DNA, um, Garland DNA lab for D Texas DPS issued its first report which basically was an inventory of the evidence that had been forwarded to it by the Austin DPS laboratory. And this was vaginal swabs collected during the investigation and an autopsy, a rectal swab, left and right breast swabs, stained from, uh, from Stacy's panties, known blood specimen from Stacy, known saliva specimen from Reed, no bl known blood specimen from Reed, a uh, vaginal, rectal, and oral swab sticks, vaginal swab slide from the crime scene, uh, hairs that we talked about earlier from her left ankle, the back of her leg and her back, uh, vaginal swab sticks, left and right breast swab sticks, vaginal swabs from the ME, from the sperm search slide, crotch sperm search slide, vaginal swab from the investigation for a sperm search slide, uh, those are what the slide is where they put the 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 initial to look for the intact sperm. And those slides are where they found Dr. Bayardo found intact sperm and Karen Blakely found intact intact sperm. So and they keep saying three intact sperm, but that's not true. Um Dr. Bayardo, I believe, was later and he quantified what he found as three intact sperm. Karen Blakely found intact sperm at 11 o'clock on the 23rd. And I don't think that she ever quantified the, the number that she observed. But again, these are observed on a single slide. This is not a comprehensive inventory of all of the sperm intact or otherwise found within Stacy's body. Um, and that's another bait and switch argument that they make, uh, which is, I think, is blatantly dishonest and meant to mislead the public. Um, they also had a rectal swab, sperm search slide, an extract, an extract from number 20 hair root and hair shaft. They also received Austin DPS reagent blanks. They read it, re, excuse me, they received extracts of stain number 46, which was from Stacy's back brace. So they received a stain in the tube, an extract of the stain in a tube, an extract at one to 10 dilution in a tube, a control sample in a tube, and then a dilution control sample in a tube. They also received uh, extracts for number 16 stain number one in tube that was from Stacy's pants and stain number 16 number two in a tube so two swabs were taken from Stacy's pants 
and they were uh they were i guess extracts were made but not tested at the time of the original testing because the volume available was not sufficient for the methods at that time then they had an extract number 22 which was about from breast swab um, they also received some other reagent blanks and tubes they had hairs on slides that we discussed earlier they did some presumptive testing uh, they had positive presumptive testing for vaginal swabs and three of the vaginal swab sticks then they have negative presumptive testing for uh, vaginal, rectal, left breast, right breast, stain from their blue panties, rectal swab sticks, and then the, the breast swab sticks. They found um, some spermatozoa semen-specific constituents detected on some of the items, and they swabbed those items for potential DNA testing. And that included a vaginal swab from the ME for the sperm search slide, the crotch sperm search slide, the vaginal swab from the investigation search slide, and the rectal swab, rectal search slide. And then they retained additional extracts for possible DNA testing. They didn't perform any analysis on the known saliva and blood specimens from Reed. And they didn't perform any analysis on the hairs. Then on the 16th, they also um, performed additional testing. Basically, the 16th is when they tested these, these, this evidence. They did YSTR testing, which is specific to males. And YSTR is similar to mitochondrial DNA. It's passed down unchanged from father to son, but only it only passes on the Y chromosome. So you and your son would share YSTR, but my father's YSTR was lost because he didn't have any any males. And I mean they they were able to find uh, DNA profiles in the sperm search fractions, but they were basically uh, an unknown male individual. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to detail all that aside from the fact that on the stain from the panties, they found uh, the unknown male individual. And there was a notation that several of the unknown male profiles were for the same person. Um, and I don't think that they tested the back brace or pants during this round of testing. Um, they did, uh, mini filer testing on the hair. Uh, again, they did the YSTR testing. And, um, in, interestingly in the YSTR testing in the epithelial fractions, they actually found unknown male DNA. But it was uh, low level and could not be compared. And that was on several different uh, different pieces of evidence. Now, on the uh, number forty six back brace stain, they found 
YSTR profile consistent with a mixture from an unknown male individual and an additional contributor due to the low level of data present above our analysis this analysis threshold, no comparison will be made to a, the additional contributor. And that was on um, all of the number 46 uh, stains. Then they found on the pants, stains number one and two, or stain number 16, one and two, they found a YSTR profile consistent with a mixture from an unknown male individual and additional contributor. Again, the additional contributor was low level of data, so they couldn't do any con uh, any comparisons. And same findings for YSTR on the breast swab. Um, so then they uh, read appealed the denial of his um, of his DNA motion. And they also on 12, 23, 2014 reads motion to transfer technical associates to order technical associates to transfer evidence to Selmark forensics was granted and entered by judge Shaver. So this is important. People need to keep this in mind. Rodney Reed has received an order allowing him to test outside of chapter 64 evidence samples from in and on Stacy's body, evidence samples from Angela and Vivian, the beer cans, and compare those, compare all those results to reference samples from David Hall, David Lawhon, uh, Ed Salmella, and several other potential suspects. Um, that was in 2014. It is 2023. That was nine years ago. And we have not heard or seen a result from Selmark of those DNA samples. And I think that that in and of itself speaks volumes about the veracity of Reed's advocates' efforts to get DNA testing. Because they should have had results that would exonerate Reed, right? Uh, Kyle, I think you're... Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I was going to say, you know, it's... I'm not one to feel sorry for these guys, but I think in a lot of cases, these defendants are just used by people like the Innocent Project who just want to generate headlines and generate ways to raise money. Mm -hmm. It just yeah. keeps it in the keeps it in the media, keeps the you know Dr. Phils and the Oprahs and the CNNs, you know, spreading disinformation, which just fuels the fundraising. Yeah. And that, but that is, I mean, this is, I almost wish I could find, and I think the next time he files something at the U.S. Supreme Court, I'm going to try and get somebody to file a copy of this order and say, okay, he wants to play this fucking game. What about this? What's the, what are the results of this testing? Right. And why has he not? inform the public about the results of this testing. He hasn't even alleged that it's contamination or or planted. Of course, he can't 
because it's evidence that hasn't been in control of the state since 1998. It's been in control of his own DNA expert. But again, you know, why has he not used these results and refuted the state's case? Because that's what he claims all the other bullshit he has does. No, exactly. So uh, another part of the agreed testing, they did uh, some additional APHIS examination and, and uh, latent print examination through APHIS, uh, but they really found no... They found no matches to the latent prints that, that they didn't find from the original investigation. Um, the state also filed a motion for accelerated appeal at the Court of Criminal Appeals and redeposed that on February 2nd, 2015. Uh, there was also a supplemental DNA laboratory report issued. And basically, uh, over every piece of evidence... They found Rodney Reed's DNA. And the the numbers for the statistics, and it's over multiple loci on the genes, different loci for different evidence. And the numbers are approximately one in 69.4 sextillion for Caucasians, one in 3.176 sextillion for Blacks, and one in 63.05 sextillion for Hispanics. So you would have to, to pull from the street 3.176 sextillion African Americans in order to come up with the DNA profile in the major component that belonged to Rodney Reed. And this was on vaginal swabs, Stacy's blue panties, um, the YST. They did mini filer testing, um, and then they did the YSTR testing. Uh, again, Rodney Reed on the YSTR for vaginal swabs, multiple vaginal swabs, sperm search slides. They found Rodney Reed's DNA on a rectal swab uh, slide from the rectal swab from the rectal search slide. So that confirms uh, or or proves the state's theory that Stacy was strangled during her attack from behind. Uh, found his YSTR on the right breast swab. Now, YSTR is a little different because it is passed down uh, unchanged from father to son. So the the statistics are 1 in 28,060. But I don't think Bastrop is really that big. No. And so... Um, or one in 25,644. And it was on the YSTR testing that they found Rodney Reed's DNA profile on Stacy's back brace and on the pants, the blue pants on her body. So the agreed DNA testing found three instances of Rodney Reed's DNA 
that was previously unknown. And these results were filed in February of 2015. And I'm just going to, I'm, I'm, I think that's, that's the icing on the cake. <laughs> so um, these were filed in uh, February of 2015 and Rodney Reed has not filed anything in any court to challenge these results, to dispute these results, to allege contamination or planting or anything uh, along those lines. He's just pretended these results don't exist. Yeah, and that's actually surprising. I mean, it's interesting too, right? If you go back to the, well, he knew that her fiance boyfriend was a policeman because according to him, he threatened reed so you would think that would be actually the lowest hanging fruit is just play you know play the this is a big police conspiracy it was all mm -hmm. planted right that would actually be the easiest kind of easiest path forward for him right but you know they're they're pretending it doesn't exist right so um and then you know the state in its analysis basically went over the reasons why the, you know, the DNA evidence and the evidence proving Reed's guilt has always been strong and it's strengthened by these additional instances of Reed's DNA uh, found on Stacy's pants and back brace. And they, these also included Stacy's genetic profile. Um, so it's undisputed that they came from, you know, something belonging to Stacy. Um, and, uh, so they concluded there's nothing exculpatory about any of the DNA reports and they confirm what the jury and courts that, uh, to have considered Reed's innocence claims have found Rodney Reed is guilty of Stacy's murder. Um, the briefing in the appeal of the DNA denial, uh, went on in February of 2015 uh, Reed did end up getting an, a, a stay of execution as well. On June 30th, 2015, the Texas Department of Public Safety sent out a notice that basically advised attorneys, defendants, courts, and district attorneys that there had been some errors discovered in the databases used to come up with the statistics on DNA mixtures. Um, the one in sextillion or one in 28,000 or whatever uh, the, the, the number may be. Um, they were advising that they identified the errors and they had been corrected and that the database corrections had no impact on the exclusion or exclusion of victims or defendants in any result. But if it was requested, they would recalculate and report statistics previously reported in individual cases. Uh, then the Texas Forensic Science Commission in August, 20, on the 21st of August, issued their own statement or notice um, that basically suggested that prosecutors, defendants, or defense attorneys with current 
pending cases involving DNA mixtures request updated probability uh, inclusion exclusion calculations be done by the laboratory using the cure the current and proper mixture interpretation protocols on november 18 2015 benjet wrote to mills and he requested that uh reed's case be uh re-examined and reported and requested certain information about the new reporting which i'm not going to detail because it's just I think a lot of these letters are just for the court of public opinion. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and, and they'll be the re they'll reprinted with some sort of air of authority and finality of life. Look, this is what was said in this case. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, Benjamin sent a letter to the clerk of the CCA advising about the potential errors in the Texas Department of Sa Safety analysis, DNA, DNA analysis and exhibits uh, and sent those letters uh, to the Court of Criminal Appeals, which really, I, I again, I think it was just court of public opinion. I don't think it was because it had would have had no impact on their review of Rodney Reed's request for DNA testing, which has nothing to do with the historical testing done. Right. Um, or even the agreed testing done. And then um, they, they uh, during this time between December 2014 and November 2015, Bode or Bodie, I can't, I never pronounce it correctly, acquired Cellmark. And so they became Bode or Bodie Cellmark Forensic Laboratory. They were going to close Cellmark's facility in Dallas, Texas, and everything was going to be moved to Lorton, Virginia. So what they did, they had to do an order, a motion requesting an order, transferring the evidence from Selmark to Bodie prior to the close of the Dallas lab. So basically they did that. And again, this is the outside Chapter 64 testing of evidence that had been maintained by technical associates that Reed had gotten an order to test uh, that 2015, eight years ago, and we have not seen a single result from that testing. So obviously it didn't exonerate Reed. I think that's a fair presumption. In any, yeah, it, it didn't exonerate him from Stacy or Angela or Vivian. Right. Um. And so uh, that was granted on December 3rd, 2015. There was a post-submission letter brief filed by Benjet to the Court of Criminal Appeals citing to State versus Denny, which is a Wisconsin Court of Criminal Appeals case or appellate court case um, that we've heard of in State versus Stephen Avery. And they also referred to Powers versus State, a 2011 Tennessee case dealing with um, uh, saying that when you do DNA testing uh, post-conviction, that you should be looking CODIS for other perpetrators, basically. Um, and Denny actually deals with what you have to 
the bar you have to meet in order to accuse someone else. But it may have had some also DNA. I haven't read it. I'll I'll read it someday. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But he also directed the court to review an amicus brief filed in State versus Swearingen um, in order to reverse the trial court and order DNA testing of the evidence in Reed, Reed's case. But State versus Swearingen, Swearingen didn't have any better, better luck than Rodney Reed. On June 29, 2016, the Court of Criminal Appeals remanded the case back to the trial court for additional findings of fact as to four issues. And that was whether the item still exists and is in condition making DNA testing possible, whether the item has been subjected to a chain of custody sufficient to establish, to establish that it's not been substituted, tampered with, replaced, or altered in any material respect, whether there's a reasonable likelihood that the item contains biological material suitable for DNA testing, and whether identity was or is an issue in this case. Um, they requested that the trial court complete that, uh, complete those additional findings within 60 days of the order, and that they, uh, any extensions of time to be obtained from the Court of Criminal Appeals. Judge Keller, or, or presiding Judge Keller, filed an a dissenting opinion, uh, basically uh, finding that because the trial court had found the appellant failed to satisfy two of the statutory requirements, uh, the remand was unnecessary and said, appellant is not entitled to DNA testing. We do not need a remand to arrive at that conclusion because the court remands this case when doing so is unnecessary. I respectfully dissent. Um, so again, the the grounds originally cited by the trial judge was enough to deny Reed's motion for DNA testing. Because with with the statutes with post-conviction DNA testing statutes, you have to have a check for each factor. And if you don't meet one factor, you don't get testing. So um the district court on July 7th issued a scheduling order uh, which was signed it was actually entered on the 5th of judge by judge shaver but not filed by the clerk until the 7th um reed filed a motion for rehearing on July 8th um because they argued that the court of criminal appeals could not remand for additional findings that the court of criminal appeals needed to vacate the district court order and remand the whole thing back to the district court for a new findings of fact and conclusions of law. I uh, read also find a motion to stay remand order and vacate the district court scheduling order on the 29th of July. They filed a motion for oral argument on the 2nd of August. Um, and again, they, you know, they, these motions, I firmly believe, are merely meant to uh, add fodder to the court of public opinion. Um, an unopposed motion for extension of time was filed on August 9th, 2016, seeking an additional 60 days for the court's findings, um, extending the time to complete the review to October 27th, 2016. Uh, there was a letter on the 12th 
of August from Benjet to Shaver, advising him of the pending motions at the Court of Criminal Appeals, including the motion for rehearing, motion to stay, remain, and vacate scheduling order, and motion to extend deadline. Um, Basically, they weren't going to do anything until the CCA ruled on those motions, which it did on August 24th. It denied all of Reed's motions, uh, the motion for rehearing, motion to stay, remain, and vacate, and uh, motion for oral argument. The state filed a motion, an unopposed motion for extension of time on August 25th, and they sought an, a brief extension, which was granted uh, on August 29th. Then Benjet sent a letter brief on August 31st to Judge Shaver, um, citing the support for his request for DNA testing. On August 31st, the state submitted its proposed findings and findings of fact and conclusions of law. On September 12th, 2016, Judge Shaver signed, or rather on the 9th of September, Judge Shaver signed both Reed and the state's findings of fact. Um, and actually, Reed's findings of fact were submitted on the on August 31st as well. Um, we don't know why we he did it. Uh, those were filed on the 12th of September and distributed. And there was a lot of head scratching going on. And um, on the 15th, the district court transmitted both sets of findings to the uh, the CCA. The state sought a remand to figure out which ones Judge Shaver really meant to enter. Um, and there was an opposition to the motion to remand and a request to assign a new district judge. And this is where uh, Reed's attorneys begin their campaign against Judge Shaver, which goes on. Um, they basically said it was appropriate to reassign because of Judge Shaver's egregious error on remand that requires reassignment. Uh, on the 23rd of September, Judge Shaver sent a letter advising that he signed both proposed findings uh, in error. It was an inadvertent mistake, and he intended to sign only the findings of fact and conclusions of law as proposed by the state of Texas. He apologized to the court and the parties, um, and that was filed in the district court on the 27th of September. Reed, of course, filed a motion to strike that letter, and he wanted to go back to the district court and have hearings uh, because he wants to drag this out as long as he can. Uh, yeah, that's the, always such a big piece of it is just dragging it out. And on the third, the state's motion to remand was denied per curiam. And that's because Judge Shaver sent a letter clarifying what he meant. Uh, Reed's motion to strike the letter was also denied per curiam. That's by the whole court. Um, and then on April 12th, 2017, the Court of Criminal Appeals entered its opinion on the DNA appeal, and that was the trial court did not err by denying defendant's motion for post-conviction DNA testing under Texas Code of Criminal Procedure, Article 64.01, 
of over 40 items collected in the course of investigating the victim's sexual assault and murder because he could not establish that exculpatory DNA results would have resulted in his acquittal and that his motion was not made for the purpose of unreasonable delay. Now, it's interesting. That was the that was the Court of Criminal Appeals reasoning for upholding the denial, which was also part of the reasoning for the state court denial. But as we see, when it gets to the federal court, Reed has redefined the grounds for denial. Um, Reed filed a motion for rehearing and requested oral argument. His grounds were that the chain of custody had been established, that irregularities in the district court proceeding violated his rights uh, under the Texas and U.S. constitutions, that he would not have been convicted if exculpatory results had been attained through DNA testing, that rehearing was necessary because the court's opinion relied on trial evidence that has been retracted and trial court findings, which are contradicted, and the DNA motion was not filed for purposes of delay. Rehearing was denied on October 4th, 2017. The court's mandate issued on October 10th, 2017. Reed filed a motion seeking to extend then time to file a petition at the U.S. Supreme Court from January 2nd, 2018 to February 1st, 2018. Um, and that was submitted to Justice Alito on December 12th, 2017. Uh, that was, I believe, granted. And then on the, four, the 1st of February, he filed his uh, petition with the U.S. Supreme Court. The question presented was petitioner was convicted and sentenced to death for the 1996 strangulation murder of Stacy Stites in rural Bastrop, Texas. Because of the technology available at the time of petitioner's trial, DNA testing has never been performed on the belt used to strangle Ms. Stites and other key evidence in the case. Modern DNA testing is capable of identifying the murderer and providing evidence that will support a number of state and federal post-conviction remedies. Now, not once does it mention that he was, uh, you know, what DNA evidence was found on Stacy and that it linked Rodney Reed to our murder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He acts as though there was never any DNA testing. Um, and, you know, I, they're relying on, oh, this evidence has been retracted. This evidence has been withdrawn. But again, he doesn't disclose that he was linked by DNA. He was identified by DNA. He wasn't even a suspect until DNA made him a suspect. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and um, the state filed a motion to extend time to file a response. Uh, there were two briefs or three briefs of Amicus Curiae or Amici uh, filed. There was 13 retired judges who argued that post-conviction stat testing statutes are based on traditional notions of fairness and accuracy inherent in our justice system. Um, not surprisingly, they ignore the fact that Reed was linked by DNA and convicted by DNA. Uh, then Texas's honorees Michael Morton and Anthony Graves, the Innocence Network and Justice 360 filed a brief in support. Now, Michael Morton was, was exonerated by DNA. No argument there. Anthony Graves was not exonerated by DNA. I, th I believe 
Anthony Graves was exonerated because the state's arson case fell apart. And there were was evidence withheld from Graves' counsel during the course of his trial that resulted in his conviction being vacated. And then the DA at the time elected not to retry him. So yeah, I think that's right. I don't know why Anthony Graves is filing a DNA petition or, or, or getting involved in a DNA petition. Um, again, they ignore the fact that Rodney Reed is linked by DNA. And then they don't even bother to argue why there may be flaws in that DNA. Um, the state filed its brief in opposition. And um, basically, they reframe the questions presented, which I'm not going to. Uh, well, except that one of them is whether fact-bound questions not properly raised below regarding Texans post-conviction DNA testing scheme, a scheme in accord with many other states and the court's relevant precedent, warrant review. Um, they also argued that the issues decided below are state law matters over which this court has no jurisdiction. This court's precedent shows denial is appropriate. Even if the court possesses jurisdiction and even if the issues presented had been properly raised and passed upon, Reed still fails to demonstrate a constitutional violation. And part of this is he didn't allege a constitutional violation at the T Court of Criminal Appeals. He alleged that in his petition for writ. Uh, Reed filed a reply brief and uh, the, the case was held, the conference was held on June 21st. And the petition was denied on June 25th, 2018. Reed's execution, there was a motion to set his execution, a hearing on a motion to set his execution date on July 23rd, 2019. And his execution, as we recall, was set for uh, November 20th, 2019. On August 8th, 2019, Reed filed his complaint and demand for trial by jury in the federal court alleging a 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 claim against Maurice Cook, the Bastrop County Sheriff, Brian Gertz, the Bastrop County District Attorney, Sarah Lux, the Bastrop County District Clerk, and Steve McCraw of the Texas Department of Public Safety. He alleged denial of due process, access to the courts, cruel and unusual punishment, denial of opportunity to prove actual innocence, and he requested injunct injunctive relief in the form of release of evidence for testing. Um, the prayer for relief included a declaration that CCCA's interpretation and application of Article 64 was unconstitutional in Reed's case because it imposed a fundamentally unfair limitation in violation of due process and the First Amendment access to the courts upon Reed's access to statutory remedies under Texas law and deprived him adequate, effective, and meaningful access to such remedies, including the statutory right to access post-conviction testing, the statutory right to a de declaration of innocence based on exculpatory DNA results. Uh, and that, that, th that in and of itself is putting the cart miles ahead of the horse. Because... All of the DNA results to date, even the agreed DNA that we just got, 
four years ago or five years ago by this time, all of the DNA inculpates Reed. Yeah, exactly. Um, he also, uh, but by this time, they're arguing that it was the chain of custody finding, not the fact that he hadn't proven exculpatory results would have resulted as, in his acquittal. Um, so he also sought reasonable attorney's fees, cost of suit, and such other and further relief as this court deems just and proper. Um, now, on the 2019, uh, and on, excuse me, September 26, 2019, there's yet another supplemental DNA report, which was as a result of Reed's or Ben Jett's letter requesting supplemental examination. And this only dealt with the mixture from the beer cans, which um, basically due to quantity or quality of the DNA obtained, no comparisons could be made to, made, made to the DNA profile obtained, obtained from this item. So it was kind of a bust. Um, but they did keep the blood samples from Ed Salmel and David Hall. They had them to compare and they're just, the DNA was probably so degraded that there was no comparison prop possible. On um, September 17th, 2019, uh, the state filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, that was actually filed by Gertz, Lux, and Cook. And then McCraw filed his own mo motion to dismiss on September 18th. Um, and they basically argued that Reed's suit was an improper mandamus action masquerading as a claim for injunctive relief. And they also argued Rooker-Feldman and 11th Amendment barred plaintiff's claims against Texas DPS and, and Brian Gertz. Um, they also uh, argued that Chapter 64 was constitutionally sound. Reed ended up amending his complaint on no, October 1st, 2019. He uh, basically, the only party he named in that amended complaint was Gertz. He identified Lux, Cook, and McCaw, McCraw as non-party custodians of evidence. Uh, he also dropped his request for uh, attorney's fees and costs because you can't get those in 1983. Um, and he filed a motion for stay of execution at the district court. Um, he, Gertz filed an answer to the amended complaint and a response to the motion to stay execution, but those weren't on, weren't on Pacer for some reason. Uh, Reed filed initial or, or, provided initial disclosures. Uh, and this is because in federal court, the timelines are kind of accelerated. So when you file a complaint, an answer is due, there's a scheduling conference, the judge sets deadlines, the parties have to exchange initial information uh, before that conference. And um you can start discovery, which is interrogatories, request, what request for production, depositions, all those things. And it happens on a kind of an accelerated basis because the federal courts want to move you in, in, in and out, out, out. So uh, Reed, in keeping with that, he filed the he sent the initial disclosures to the uh, to Gertz. 
Uh, Gertz filed an amended motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction and failure to state a claim upon which relief could be granted and basically argued that all of Reed's claims failed as a matter of law. I'm not going to go into the specifics. Maybe one day we'll we'll look at them because, as you can see, it's a lot. Um, right, Kyle? Are you still awake, sweetie? Uh, oh, you broke up. Oh, sorry. My, my computer's been really crazy today now, so I'm still here. I'm listening. I'm okay. just trying to absorb it all. Okay. All right. So then there was an op opposition filed, uh, another a formal opposition to the motion to stay execution on October 15th. Uh, Gertz also filed an opposed motion to stay discovery uh, because while the court is looking at the lack of jurisdiction, failure to state a claim allegations, which would not be expanded on by discovery and would not be remedied by discovery, he sought to have no discovery take place until the court had ruled on those motions. And that's that's a common practice. And I, I think real quick, Another problem that I see in in especially the innocence fraud movement is people who believe these killers are innocent, who think that when the killer makes a claim, the state is required to lay down and say, OK, you win. Right. And let them have what they want to have. Let them get a new trial. Let them have DNA testing. And I constantly see the argument if they believe that the person's guilty. Why won't they test the DNA? Because they don't have to. Because right. the burden's not on them to continue proving guilt. The burden is on the person who's been convicted to prove that he's innocent and to prove that he's entitled to the DNA testing that he believes will prove that innocence. Um, they don't have to let him have what they want to have. And that's, you know, that's part of an adversarial system. And right. we can well, see... And it's in, easy, I mean, it's easy... I mean, it's easy for people to get emotional, like, oh, well, we should just care about, you know, truth, justice in the American mm -hmm. way, which is fair. I don't disagree right. with that. But the reality is we can't, it's just not practical to litigate every single case for decades and decades and decades and just yeah. whatever, you know, if the defendant says Martians did it, oh, great. We Now we have to do some testing for Martian DNA. I mean, yeah. It just gets ridiculous so, at some point, especially uh, when they had all the opportunity to bring mm -hmm. that stuff up, you know, during the trial. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, so Reed filed on the, on the 22nd of October, Reed filed a response in opposition to motion, motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction and failure to state a claim. Uh, basically, he argued that controlling Supreme Court authority makes clear that Rooker Feldman does not strip the court of jurisdiction that Gertz was not immune from suit, that Reed's claims were filed timely um, because they did argue that Reed's claims were filed several months too late because they were filed in August of 2019 and the opinion, the, the underlying opinion in the TCCA was issued in April of 2017. So that's more than two years after after and you have two it's a two-year statute of limitations um and that's also statutes of limitations serve a purpose 
so that uh, both sides have a fair shake. It's not fair to let somebody hold on to something for five years. And then when all the witnesses are dead, that could prove they don't have a claim, then they file their claim and the defendant is left with no witnesses. You know, um, and so it's it's if you know you have an right. injury, you need to pursue it right away. You can't wait exactly. for years and years and years, right? Until you lose your witnesses and they lose their witnesses, right? Yeah, um, and there, I mean, there's just some level of basic credibility when all of these things. You know, I'm not saying sometimes new information doesn't come out in every single case, but again, yeah. there's nothing here that couldn't have been presented at the original trial. And uh, Reed also argued that all of his uh, procedural due process claims were well pled and that his uh, right of access to the courts, Eighth Amendment and Texas constitutional violation claims and his amended complaint were also viable claims. He also filed a response in opposition to the motion to stay discovery. Um, the state filed a or he filed a reply in support of his motion to stay execution and then on the 14th when he um after he had filed additional his 10th habeas claim in state court he filed an advisory to the court with those pleadings and exhibits and asked the district court to consider those filings in its determination of his entitlement to a stay of execution and then he also filed a second advisory to the court, which basically just included an order from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which essentially uh, dismissed his uh, application to file a successive federal habeas claim based on the claim that he had already filed in Texas state court and that he could refile that when his Texas state court claim was resolved. Uh, on the 15th of November, he the uh, district court issued its order and um, plaintiff Rodney Reed, a Texas death row inmate, scheduled to be executed on November 20, 2019. On August 8, 2019, Reed filed a civil rights complaint arguing that denial of his motion for DNA testing in state court denied him, among other things, the right to due process of law and access to the courts. See 42 U.S.C. 1983, Section 1983. Reed later amended his complaint and filed for a stay of execution. Defendant Gertz opposes both of these requests. Currently pending before the court are Reed's amended complaint, document number 10, Gertz's motion to dismiss, document number 22, and Reed's opposition to the motion to dismiss, document number 25, as well as Reed's motion to stay execution, document 11, Gertz's opposition, document 23, and Reed's reply, document 27. Also before the court are Gertz's motion to stay discovery, document 24, and Reed's opposition, document 26. For the reasons discussed below, Gertz's motion to dismiss will be granted and Reed's complaint will be dismissed for failing to state a claim upon which relief may be granted. In addition, Reed's motion to stay the execution will be denied and Gertz's motion to stay discovery dismissed. Now, among all the reasons cited by the district court, 
I did not note any reference to the statute of limitations or timeliness of Reed's complaint in federal district court. So where the Fifth Circuit came up with this, I don't know. Um, Reed, uh, the court also issued on, on November 15th, 2019, a final judgment. Um, the TCCA ended up granting a stay and remanding some of Reed's claims to state court, uh, which we'll talk about at another time, hopefully after the TCCA makes a final decision. Uh, on the 13th of December, he filed a notice of appeal at the Fifth Circuit. The record on appeal was uh, a notice was given that it was available on PACER on December 16th. A briefing notice was issued, which uh, put Reed's brief due at on January 27th, 2020. The attorneys for Skadden Arps, which is Andrew McRae's firm, uh, in Texas and in Delaware, file, uh, filed a letter on December 31st advising that they were representing Reed po pro bono and would not seek appointment as lead counsel or compensation from the court for the representation. Uh, Reed's brief was filed. And um, again, there was no mention of timeliness <laughs> or whether it was timely or not. Uh, the record excerpts were filed on behalf of Reed, which is basically the entire record becomes available to the court, but then the parties, either jointly or individually, they put in record excerpts the specific pleadings they want the court to pay attention to. So that narrows the court's focus a little bit, and we do it, uh, we do it. In, New, in Louisiana, in our state courts, we do kind of the same thing. The entire record goes up, but we have, with our brief, with our uh, application for a writ, supervisory writ to a higher court, we have an appendix that has the specific pleadings dealing with the issues that are on appeal. Uh, there was a motion to withdraw on February 11th, 2020, filed by Bryce Benjet. That was granted on February 11th. Uh, that is when Bryce Benjet went to the Queen's DA uh, Conviction Integrity Union. God save people in Queens. <laughs> for, um, many for many reasons. Yeah. On February 24th, the state filed its appellee's brief. And they did raise the timeliness issue because they raised it below. Um, and then, uh, Reed filed an apply, a reply brief on March 16th, 2020. Um, they, you know, again, they're, they, they rely on, um, a lot of things like they claim the state's relying on false evidence, but they've never proven any of the trial evidence to be false. Uh, they've made the allegations, but when it comes time to prove it, they have failed miserably. Yeah, that's always the way it is. It's, <laughs> you can talk the big game, but when you actually have to actually prove what you're saying, that's the fail. Yeah. So, um, and then on the 17th, there were some decisions by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal um, in two cases. So the, the state, they were helpful to the state. So the state filed supplemental authorities 
directing the court to look at those cases. And one of them dealt with the timeliness issue. And that was a, a case called N. Ray Hoffman that was decided on April 3rd, 2020, affirming the dismissal of a 42 USC 1983 claim is untimely. The Fifth Circuit held that the clock began to run the moment Texas officials first seized the Hoffman's horses. And that, I think, is the genesis of the argument relied on by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal that said Reed's claim accrued when the Texas state, the district court, denied his request for DNA testing. And um, that probably is not correct, but I do believe uh, that the the claim accrued when the Court of Criminal Appeals issued its opinion, because even though Reed did file for rehearing in a lot of statutory schemes, filing for rehearing does not give you more time to go proceed to the next court. Uh, you know, to go to a higher court. There are some um, some statutes in Louisiana where, yes, your time to apply for a new trial, that is counted. So you get an extra seven days, whether you apply for a new trial or not. But in other statutes, it says, you know, applying for rehearing does not uh, give you more time unless rehearing is accepted. If rehearing is ultimately denied, your time has already run. So if rehearing is, if your, if your brief is due in the higher court, say on September 1st, if rehearing is denied on August 30th, you have to hurry up and get that brief on September 1st because the time rehearing was pending did not stop the clock. And again, that's, you know, that happens in Louisiana. A lot of times with Louisiana, if it, if rehearing stops the clock, it says so in the, in the rule or in the statute. And if the statute is silent, then you're better off just pretending that you didn't ask for rehearing. Now, again, if you file for rehearing and the court says on August 12th, you file on the 10th and on August 12th, they say they accept rehearing, your clock stops. <coughs> Pardon me. So, but again, I think this is where, this is what put the bug in the ear of the Fifth Circuit on the timeliness issue. And then, of course, McRae responded and distinguished Hoffman. And then there was a second case, uh, Gutierrez versus Sainz, which was decided on June 12th, 2020 by the Fifth Circuit, that vacated the district court stay of execution in a 42 USC 1983 claim challenging Texas post-conviction DNA testing scheme. The court held that Chapter 64's preponderance of the evidence standard used to determine if DNA testing is warranted is constitutional. Uh, McRae responded, arguing that Reed does not challenge the preponderance of the evidence standard. He argues that the Court of Criminal Appeals has established arbitrary extra textual rules, providing that some categories of evidence, such as evidence of a different culprit, um, 
evidence that has been stored in a certain ways and the fact that evidence used to convict at trial has been formally withdrawn cannot be counted toward the preponderance. Therefore, Gutierrez does not impact Reed's claims. Um, on April 21st, 2021, the court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued its opinion. They held that as plaintiffs had asserted a claim for protective declaratory relief, the ex parte young exception permitted him to bring his claim. The district court correctly concluded that the Rooker-Feldman doctrine was inapplicable to plaintiffs 42 U.S.C. 1983 claim because he challenged the constitutionality of Texas post-conviction DNA statute. Because this was a lawsuit brought for declaratory relief, the county DA was not entitled to absolute prosecutorial immunity. Plaintiff had the necessary information to know that his rights were allegedly being violated as soon as the trial court denied his motion for DNA for post-conviction relief. Because he knew or should have known of his alleged injury in November of 2014, five years before he brought his 1983 claim, his claim was time barred. And then the court affirmed the district hmm. court's dismissal of plaintiff's claims because they were not timely. A judgment was entered on the 22nd of, of 2021. The mandate issued on May 14, 2021. Reed filed his petition and appendix at the U.S. Supreme Court on September 20, 2021. Uh, a motion for uh, leave to file an amicus brief was filed, and that was ultimately granted. Uh, Michael Morton and Anthony Graves again filed an amicus brief or amici brief. Uh, Gertz filed a response in opposition. Reed filed a reply brief. This particular case was scheduled for conference multiple times and then rescheduled. And it was finally her, it was finally conferenced on April 22nd, 2022. And certiorari was granted on April 25th, 2022. Um, there was a notice issued in June setting oral argument for October 11th, 2022. Reed and Gertz filed blanket consents for amici to be to briefs to be filed. Uh, the record was requested for the from the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit uh, basically responded that the record was electronic and located on PACER. And I believe the federal courts, the courts themselves may have access to PACER without cost. I'm not sure about that, but um, so Reed filed his merits brief on July 1st, 2022. And basically the, by this point now the issue has become the statute of limitations for Reed to file his section 1983 claim. So while there is an allegation that Reed did not timely seek DNA testing because he waited until the morning of a hearing on a motion to set his execution date to file a motion for DNA testing, which is a pretty logical presumption that he's not acting diligently. Um, the timing issue deals with the filing of his 1983 claim, not his claim requesting DNA testing. Uh, again, that's a, yet another aspect that the media misrepresents. Uh, they also have alleged that the state of Texas imposed the statute of limitations on Reed, 
when in reality, the statute of limitations is part of Texas state law. Right. If if Reed were a prisoner in Louisiana, he would have only had a year. Right. To file. Because that's the statute of limitations or, or prescription in Louisiana. So it's not an arb and it's not something arbitrary that the state of Texas just came up with no, to not, block Reed. Yeah. Not some it's, great conspiracy it's, against it applies Reed. across the board to litigants exactly. in all Texas state courts and in federal courts because federal courts are are governed as to statutes of limitations issues by what whatever state law requires. Um, and again, it's just it's the practical reality that you know, we have finite resources and finite time. You cannot just litigate every court, every case into eternity. Yeah. So and then um, in July, multiple amici uh, filed briefs. There were eight retired judges and, and amicus briefs. Amici tried to supplement whoever they're filing in support of. They try to supplement their argument. So you have a limited page count or a limited number of words. And so amici are helpful in focusing on areas that may not be touched on by the underlying merits briefs or by the party's merits briefs. So for example, the eight judges talk about what great thing post-conviction DNA testing, and all of them ignored the fact that Rodney Reed is conviction is based on DNA testing and DNA results that conclusively link him to Stacey Stites' murder. Uh, Professor Fred Smith filed a an amici. He's a law professor in Texas. Uh, basically, he argued the jurisdictional issues. Uh, law Enforcement Action Partnership and the National Police Accountability Project filed uh, criticizing the original investigation. No surprise there. Uh, Constitutional Accountability Center filed uh, touting the the uh, wonders of Section 1983 and how great it is for everybody. NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund filed an amicus brief. And yes, they're the ones who brought in race. Uh, an alleged Mr. Reed's trial illustrates the nexus between racial, bi racial bias and wrongful convictions. And guess what? They never mentioned that he's linked by DNA. Uh, Michael Morton and Anthony Graves filed their third amicus brief in support of Reed. Federal court scholars filed an amicus brief in support of Reed. Um, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU Foundation of Texas, and the Cato, Cato Incident and Rutherford in Institute and Rutherford Institute, pardon me, uh, filed amici. And they basically argued against application of the Fifth Circuit and Seventh Circuit rules uh, as to timeliness of a Section 1983 claim. Then, uh, and this one, I hope he lost his job. Uh, Chase Baumgartner, who was a DPS employee, filed a brief saying that, oh, well, the, the testing read once can be done. And, you know, we can figure out if there's contamination and it's not going to it's not going to affect our results. 
um, you know, we can figure it out if it's if it's contamination or if it's involved in the murder. Um, so but I think, again, Chase is not looking at the fact that he didn't look at those 2015 DNA results that found additional DNA from Rodney Reed on three new items of evidence and found one in sextillion in several hundred sextillion um, you know chances of another African-American male having an identical DNA profile to Rodney Reed uh, which uh, which DNA profile was found on multiple across multiple uh, items of evidence uh, Brian Gertz filed his respondent brief on August 23rd 2022 um, and I'm going to skip over the arguments because, again, I wanted to so much, but it's a lot. And maybe someday we'll talk, we'll spend a whole episode just talking about the arguments against Reed's various briefs. Um, and then also, uh, Gertz did have amicus or amici in, from the state of Montana and nine other states which supported his position that the 11th Amendment and statute of limitations barred Reed's claims. Reed filed a, a reply brief. Oral argument was held on October 11th, 2022, and the U.S. Supreme Court issued its opinion on April 19th, 2023. They found petitioner had standing because Petitioner sufficiently alleged an injury in fact, which was denial of access to the requested evidence. A federal court's conclusion that Texas post-conviction DNA testing procedures violated due process would have amounted to a significant increase in the likelihood that petitioner would obtain relief that directly redu redressed the injury suffered. When a prisoner pursued post state post-conviction DNA testing through the state-provided litigation project process, the statute of limitations for a 1980, section 1983 procedural due process claim began to run when the state litigation ended, which, in other words, is when the state court denied the rehearing. Um, petitioner's 1983 claim, which raised a procedural due process challenge to Texas post-conviction DNA testing law was timely because the statute of limitations began to run when the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denied petitioner's motion for retesting. And so the judgment was reversed in a six to three decision with two dissents. Uh, I'm not going to go through the syllabus um, from the decision. It basically, again, because they, they really limited to the timeliness. They didn't talk about reads um uh, reads petition when dna testing was denied challenging the due process in that petition um and it didn't really talk about the fact that he's linked by dna so this whole request for dna testing is um kind of futile because it, it nothing Nothing excluding Reed is going to exonerate him based on the the strength of the DNA evidence that already. Yeah, in, in exactly. Culpate. Yeah, I mean that's that. I mean you've made this point a bunch when it's really good that are just double hook audit, which is 
he's not denying the evidence that points to him. So, okay, great. They find Jimmy Finnell's DNA on the belt. Mm -hmm. Doesn't, doesn't uh, mean that Reed did not do it. Right. And, you know, Reed is arguing that he had this secret relationship with Stacy, but he's never produced a single credible witness. And none of these witnesses that he's produced came forward at the time Stacy was murdered. No, exactly. At the time Reed was arrested or at the time he was on trial for his life. Well, and, and that yeah, doesn't and make it, any sense. Right. And it's like in some of the other innocence fraud cases, it's one thing to just say publicly, to, oh, I can get invited to a TV show if I say, oh, yeah, I saw this. It's a lot different than going under oath and facing perjury charges and actually testifying and subjecting yourself to cross-examination. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So there were two dissents, and I want to focus on the two dissents. Because while in the grand scheme of things, they don't mean a whole lot, they still demonstrate that there are some people who can see through the smoke and mirrors that was presented by Rodney Reed's counsel. Um, Justice Thomas first wrote the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the denial of petitioners Rodney Reed's state law motion for post-conviction DNA testing. Reed petitioned this court for certiorari, arguing that the CCA's interpretation and application of the relevant state law violated his federal due process rights. After we denied his petition, Reed repackaged it as a complaint in federal district court, naming respondent, the Bastrop County District Attorney, as a placeholder defendant. Like his earlier certiorari petition, Reed's complaint assails the CCA's state law reasoning as inconsistent with due process, and it seeks a declaration that the CCA's interpretation and application of state law was unconstitutional. In sum, there's no getting around the essential problem with Reed's due process claim. To the extent he is not merely seeking an advisory opinion, he is complaining about a court-inflicted injury, and redressing that injury would require an exercise of appellate jurisdiction that the district court does not possess. In substance, his complaint in this action is a mere reprise of his prior certiorari petition, camouflaged as an original action against the district attorney. Thus, I would vacate the Fifth Circuit's judgment and remand this case to the district court with instructions to dismiss the complaint for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Because the majority, majority undermines vital principles of federal jurisdiction and destabilizes the orderly working of our judicial system, I respectfully dissent. Uh, then Justice Alito wrote, and he was joined by Justice Gorsuch, uh, they also dissented. This case involves a suit brought by Petitioner Rodney Reed under revised statute 42 U.S.C. 1983 against Brian Gertz, a district attorney of Bastrop, Texas. Reed claims that Gertz violated his due process rights when, based on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals interpretation of the Texas statute that allows post-trial DNA testing under specified circumstances, Article 64 of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure, Gertz continued to deny Reed's request for DNA testing of certain items found near the scene of the murder for which he was convicted 25 years ago. And actually, by the time this opinion was written, it was 30 years ago. 
Oh no, never mind. Sorry. I'm horrible at math. Monday evening math. <laughs> Read Reed cites no authority for the proposition that the filing of a petition for rehearing typically suspends the authoritative force of an appellate court's decision. And in fact, it appears that the opposite is true. As this court's GVR practice illustrates, on, on or shortly after the day when we hand down a decision, we often GVR cases in which petitions raising similar issues are pending before us. That is, we grant a petition, vacate the decision below, and remand the case for reconsideration in light of the decisions we've handed down. On June 30th, 2022, for example, we did this in no fewer than 33 cases. We do not wait to see if the petition for rehearing will be filed, nor do we hold off until a mandate is issued or a certified copy of the judgment is prepared. See this court's rules 45.2 and 45.3. If our decisions did not become authoritative and binding as soon as they are issued, this practice would be impermissible. There's no reason why decisions of the CCA should be viewed any differently. On the contrary, it appears that the CCA has followed a practice similar to our GVR practice. See Oliver versus State, which is at 872 Southwest 2nd, 713, 716, Texas Criminal uh, Appeal, 1994, vacating judgment and remanding for reconsideration in light of decision on the same day. And neither Reed nor the court has cited any contrary Texas authority. Accordingly, Reed's authoritative construction argument became complete at the latest when the CCA adopted the construction on April 12, 2017, two years and 11 months before Reed filed his 1983 complaint. Whatever merit these arguments might have in relation to the accrual date adopted by the Fifth Circuit, they ring hollow as applied to the choice between the date when a state high court issues a decision interpreting the state testing statute and the date when that court refuses to rehear and overturn that interpretation. One need not have supernatural foresight in order to predict that rehearing is unlikely to be granted. And it is hard to see how requiring a Section 1983 plaintiff to sue within two years after a state high court decision is issued is unfair or does any damage to federalism, comedy, or judicial economy. Reed has provided no explanation why he could not have filed his Section 1983 action within two years after the CCA's decision. Instead, he waited till an execution date was set. While that event may have concentrated his mind wonderfully, that is not an excuse for the basic mistake of missing a statute of limitations. For the, these reasons, I would affirm the judgment below, and I therefore respectfully dissent. Yeah, that makes, I mean, and there's a lot of the, just the kind of theater to it, right? It's mm -hmm. like, if you can, if your headline can be last minute saves execution, you know, there's a lot of theater to that. Yeah. Versus just, hey, a random procedural filing. Correct. So, um, all right, well, we're, we're uh, actually going to come up close on time, so uh, this is now going back to the Fifth Circuit. Reed is seeking uh, supplemental briefing, which is opposed by the state because basically they fully briefed everything on the first round. And now that the timeliness issue has been eliminated, the the Fifth Circuit has to decide on the merits of the claim 
and basically whether the district court's dismissal was proper or not. Um, so this year, uh, my final thoughts on this. Um, well, do you have anything first? I'm sorry. No, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think it's the same thing. I just think this is one of, I mean, this case for me at least is like top three most disinformation cases out there mm -hmm. where it's really, you know, portrayed and just fully dishonest way. And as you know, I shared with you before, I mean, I think the thing that just sort of really frustrates me is recently in the last, you know, four or five years, they've really tried to position this as some sort of, you know, George Floyd, racist, you know, white mm -hmm. cop, you know, black defendant case. And there's literally no evidence of that. And I just, what, what yeah. makes my heart sad is I feel like it just, it's just divisive because people will listen to the popular media podcast and think, mm -hmm. oh yes, here's a poor black man being railroaded by the system when the reality right. is he's a multi, you know, arrested rapist who again as we've said before was only a suspect because he literally tried to do the same thing to another woman that mm -hmm. you know thank god was able to get away and i think that's lost in you know and i think what gets lost is not only the reality but also the stites family and carol and yeah. stacy and her memory and you know it all just gets lost and you know that oh she's just sleeping around with her you know sleeping around on her fiance which is just really mm -hmm. a, a slander to her Correct. you know and just really disrespectful to a, a poor woman who was brutally murdered yeah and i mean her family at the july hearings her family had the most ugly horrible things yelled at them of course yeah right you know i mean they're they're and glossop is doing it in the in the in the glossop case they're doing it to barry van trees yeah exactly um, i mean this is a woman who wasn't perfect but really his life was on track, was working hard, was a great worker, you know, haven't heard a real bad thing about her. Yeah. And she continually gets slandered as somebody who was, you know, sleeping around on her fiance yeah. and just promiscuous yeah. and just, you know. Yeah. I just think it's unfortunate that the that and you know, you say this a lot, you and Roberta both. It's just amazing to me how many women come out in support of men accused mm -hmm. of beating, raping, and murdering other women. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So my final thoughts before Zoom cuts us off. <laughs> this year marks 27 years since Rodney Reed raped and murdered Stacey Lee Stites, a 19-year-old woman. Stacy was a daughter, a sister, a mother, and about to be a wife. Rodney Reed lied about his relationship with Stacy in 1998 because it worked when he lied about a secret relationship with Connie Y in 1991. Thankfully, the Bastrop County jury didn't fall for his lies and convicted him. The only people to whom Reed's guilt is in question are those who choose to willfully remain blind to the truth, either, either due to their own biases or agendas. A fact lost on Reed and his advocates, his supporters, and the media is that finding unknown DNA, no DNA, or Fennel's DNA on Stacy's belt or any of the evidence Reed sought to test would not change the outcome of his trial 
due to the fact that Reed's conviction is supported by conclusive DNA evidence linking Reed to Stacy's rape and murder. In 20-plus years of post-conviction litigation, Reed's advocates have failed to refute this fact. Every witness presented by Reed in over 20 years of post-conviction litigation to support his claim of a clandestine relationship with Stacy has been found to lack credibility and or their testimony has been deemed unreliable by the TCCA. As recently as 2021, in, his, in connection with Reed's 10th state writ, a new round of witnesses who came forward prior to Reed's execution dates in 2014 and or 2019 testified before the district court, and each of them was found to lack cre credibility, primarily because of their failure to come forward with their information in 1996 when Stacy was murdered, or 1997 when Reed was arrested, or 1998 when Reed stood trial. The evidence presented by Reed in an attempt to inculpate Fennell or Lawhon or someone else, including alternative theories of the crime put forth based on expert opinions that Stacy's time of death was hours earlier than that presented at trial, alleged inconsistent statements by Fennell and allegations of false testimony at trial have been rejected either on the merits or on procedural grounds as the claims and evidence could have been presented in Reed's initial state post-conviction writ. In 2014, Judge Andrew W. Austin wrote, Reed's argument reads far more like a scattershot attempt to cast doubt on the state's evidence that a single coherent theory explaining why Reed is innocent or why there is credible evidence from which a regional, reasonable juror would have concluded that someone other than Reed murdered Stacy Stites. It's worth noting how divergent from the norm Reed's DNA argument is. In most post-conviction proceedings involving rape, the petitioner is using the lack of DNA match to demonstrate his innocence. Reed obviously cannot do that here and instead is having to offer an explanation for the match. Courts have given the lack of DNA match so much evidentiary weight that in numerous cases, the lack of a DNA match has been used to exonerate a convicted defendant, even where, when there is contradictory eyewitness and circumstantial evidence. The evidence of a DNA match, as here, should be no less powerful. If Reed has no innocent explanation for the sperm found in Stacy Stites' vagina being his, then his DNA match is significant. Indeed, in light of the other evidence noted in footnote 9, perhaps conclusive evidence of his guilt. And even if not conclusive, it is certainly compelling evidence would have led a reasonable juror to find Reed guilty of rape and murder. Because Reed's claim that he had an affair with Stacy Stites does not have credible evidentiary support, his claim of actual innocence is doomed. Once the claim of a consensual relationship is rejected, Reed's other innocence-based claims are just not enough to overcome the damning DNA evidence. For example, Reed contends that the collection of evidence at the crime scene was sloppy and cross-contaminated Stacy's body. And this undermines the prosecution's contention that DNA found around Stacey's anus, anus or breasts showed that she had sex recently and it was not consensual. It simply doesn't matter if the semen leaked from her vagina to her anus because investigators improperly moved her body or if the pubic tape lifts contaminated the DNA collected from Stites' breast. Because the fact is, regardless of where on Stites' body it was found, Reed's semen was found on her body, and without a consensual relationship between them, there is no innocent explanation for Reed's semen being anywhere on her body. 
Similarly, all the discussions regarding sperm motility is of no moment unless there is evidence that Reed had sex with Stacy Stites before her murder. The fact that Andrew McRae and Jane Puger continue to present the false narrative that Reed has presented exculpatory evidence to the courts that has been ignored and that Jimmy Finnell is the person who killed Stacy, in spite of the lack of a scintilla of DNA evidence linking him is what makes this case one of the most egregious examples of innocence fraud. To continue to advocate for Reed and claim his innocence to the courts and the media, McRae and Putra ignored the conclusive 1997-1998 DNA results, including those obtained by Reed's expert, Dr. Elizabeth Johnson, linking Reed not only to Stacy's rape and murder, but to the rapes of Angela H. in 1989 and Vivian H. in 1995, six months before Stacy's murder. The conclusive 2014-15 DNA results, identifying Reed's DNA on Stacy's blue pants, back brace, and a breast swab. The absence of disclosure of the evidence extracts in the custody of technical associates that were transferred to Bode Cellmark, Lord, Virginia, for testing outside Chapter 64, including reference samples and rape kit, rape kit evidence for Angela H. and Vivian H., Surely, if Reed had been exonerated by any of the results of Bode Selmark's testing, his advocates would have been shouting it from the rooftops. And that is my final thought for now. See how all this plays out. Yeah. So we'll we'll see. Um, again, Reed wants supplemental briefing at the Fifth Circuit. It's opposed by the state as not warranted. Um, their opposition was filed on the 12th. I am keeping an eye on the Fifth Circuit docket to uh, see what they decide. Um, and then uh, I don't think they're likely to grant oral argument either that Reed has requested. Uh, but I, I don't have a timeline of when they'll decide. But it will be the merits of the of the complaint and whether there is uh, uh, whether there's jurisdiction or a cause of action. So he still has a long way to go to sort of get he's, a little but, bit. Yeah. This isn't really anywhere close to him. that started getting out of prison fair. No, no. Um, you know, the, the outcomes are, and, and that's another thing that's being misrepresented. The Fifth Circuit is not going to decide whether he's entitled to DNA testing or not. They're going to decide the merits of his 1983 claim. If they decide it was improperly uh, dismissed by the district court, then it will go back to the district court. And then there will be evidentiary hearings and um, you know discovery and all those things. And then he will have to prove the merits of his 1983 claim. If they decide the district court properly dismissed it, then he goes back to the U S Supreme court and they decide whether he, whether to accept a, another writ right. and whether it was properly dismissed by the district court. Um, the merits of his DNA test request is still not before any court. That's over and done that's with. He's been denied. And that's not going to change unless he is able to go back to the district court and prove 
that the interpretation violated the Constitution or violated due process. So again, DNA testing is not going to happen from the Fifth Circuit or the District Court. Neither of those courts has the power to order a Texas state to do anything. If they say it's unconstitutional, then that might change. But as of right now, that's that's all that's on the on the table is whether it was properly dismissed. And if they find it was improperly dismissed, it goes back for merits development. And I think that's the other problem, too, is to play to the court of public opinion. Reed keeps uh, reads that advocates keep spreading this false merits argument that is irrelevant. And it wasn't properly before the state court and it's not properly before the federal courts. So, um, so that is Roddy Reed for tonight. No, great job as always. Thank you for all your work. I know how much work Thank you put you. into these pages and pages of details. <laughs> Thanks. All right. I'm trying to find my I'm trying to find my outro so I can read it real quick because I don't remember whether I did 15 minutes or 45 minutes or half an hour. And I don't want us to get cut off. All right. Um, thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans. If you like the show and want to know more, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us in two weeks for Episode 6, Updates, Oklahoma versus Glossop. We'll talk about the U.S. Supreme Court opinion. Oh, wait, I picked up the wrong one. Uh, we'll talk about the case, uh, the Glossop case and whatever may or may not have happened with his execution, which, which is scheduled for... Uh, May 18th this week, uh, he was granted a stay on May 5th, but that is only good so long as his two writs are pending at the U.S. Supreme Court. And my apologies for picking up the wrong, the wrong piece of paper. And uh, that's it. Good night. Thank you.